Our first reading is from John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Our next reading is from Acts, chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Hi. Good morning, Kings. Thanks for having me. Uh, to join you so early in a new year, 2021, filled with uh, a great deal of opportunities, challenges, fears, apprehensions. But of course, we're confident uh, that God of the past and the future is a God of 2021. And of course, one of the many questions still in our minds after the traumas of 2020 Uh, are questions around issues of racial justice. And so the big question still awaits us. um, What's next on race? Um, And we've all been drawn to attention on this very important issue because out in the big wide world, there are many books flying off the shelves, some of which we may have read ourselves in recent months Rennie Edo Lodge, on why she doesn't want to talk to white folks anymore about race, or Robin D'Angelo on uh, white fragility, um, Akala's stuff on race and identity and class, 
uh, the brilliant series by Steve McQueen, the black producer, Small Axe, raising issues around uh, racial injustice in the UK over the past 50 years or so. And of course, within the church, we have been asking similar questions. Many of you will be associated with uh, Ben Lindsay's book, um, Why We Need to Talk About Race, um, and Azariah France Williams uh, published a great book last year, um, Ghost Ship, critiquing racism within the Anglican communion, largely but applicable to all church communities. And a good friend of mine as well, Leroy Logan, ex-policeman, who wrote his own kind of biography, Closing Ranks, his experience as a Christian in the police service. So we find this issue inescapable. Uh, but the educational process is only a part of the question, isn't it? Discipleship means learning and doing, which is really what we want to talk about. It's going beyond information to the application of the things which we have been reading, digesting, wrestling with, and hopefully we'll be discussing um, in the months and years ahead. And it's, it's, it's also more than learning because it's about doing things differently. And here's the thing. If we're going to do things differently, we have to think differently. Uh, Willie Jennings, great theologian, uh, published a really helpful book uh, recently called um, Beyond Whiteness. Um, and for him, this is about formation the formation of the Christian mind. Or you may want to look at Dave Swanson's book, Discipling White Christians, written by a white evangelical Christian in the US. Um, he makes a very important point, which, which I think comes to the heart of our discussion today. And that is, we may focus on diversity. How do we do diversity better? He says, that's really not the issue. The issue is, how we do discipling better? How does our discipleship change our mindset in such a way that our actions are prompted by biblical thinking, not by subcultural Christian ideas, which have been part of our thinking for a great deal of time? So for our behavior to change, we must think differently. Hence the text you had read earlier, this very important story of the woman uh, from Samaria who Jesus met um, on his journey. It's a powerful and amazing story. We know it well. Uh, I, I think our tendency is to lock on to the story of the woman by the well and think of it purely in evangelistic terms. This is a bad gal who Jesus meets by the well, she gets converted to faith in Christ and the whole village becomes uh, becomes a follower, follower of Jesus Christ. And that's the story. Actually, the punchline is in that ninth verse of John 4. The Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's it. And so what I think we have here is an example of Jesus's 
Samaritan policy, if you like. Jesus is Samaritanism. In other words, we see isolated examples of Jesus and his disciples running into Samaritans. So there is the story of the ten lepers in the book of Luke. They're healed. One returns to say thank you. He just happens to be a Samaritan. Or the incredible story of the Good Samaritan, as we call it from Luke chapter 10, where Jesus totally disrupts Jewish thinking by drawing into the center of his teaching an individual or a culture or a religious community who the Jews find absolutely reprehensible. The last person who you can think about as a teacher for Jewish morality or ethics is a Samaritan. But yes, that's the man who teaches us what it means to be a good neighbor. And so what we have here is Jesus doing more than giving us isolated stories of his encounters with Samaritan. This is Jesus's Samaritanism. This is Jesus saying to his disciples, if you're going to be my disciples, and if you're going to go into all the world to preach the good news, starting with Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, you have to change your thinking, gentlemen, because you cannot carry out a gospel of good news to everyone unless your thinking has been challenged, disrupted, discomforted, and renewed. And so Jesus's Samaritanism is displayed here in this incredible story by the world. We don't have the space or time here to talk about the details of that, but this is a cultural discussion. This is a discussion about religious diversity. This is a discussion about history. This is a story of two backstories coming together in which, yes, this woman recognizes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And she runs to her village and she calls everyone out. Was she a bad, bad, bad woman? Not sure. Would a bad woman have been able to totally arrest the entire village at a moment's notice? I'm not sure. In fact, we don't even know if this woman herself became a follower of Jesus Christ. We know that the whole village received him and many became his followers. There's nothing which tells us specifically that she also followed Jesus. I think we can make that assumption safely. But my point is, maybe that's not the entirety of what John is saying to us in this well-known story. I think he's trying to tell us that the Samaritans and the Jews have no dealings, but would you believe these people embraced Jesus and then Jesus and his disciples embraced them? How do you know that? Well, they spent two days with Samaritans. Can you imagine what it would have been like for a Jewish believer, an orthodox mindset, to spend two days with Samaritans? To wake up the following day and eat a Samaritan breakfast 
to have been in a Samaritan bed, to pat little Samaritan kids on the head and to wish them well. And were they witnessing nonstop for two days? I don't think so. This would have been an encounter of histories and stories and anecdotes and insights and the exchange of information almost as it were amongst equals for two days. You could not have been a disciple with Jesus in Samaria for two days without beginning to change your worldview on Samaritans. And that's how we're going to be fit to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world. So learning is often a process of reassessing the outsider. And it's often about learning from those outside of our own terms of reference. And this is really so important. Sometimes you just need other people to help you see yourself, don't you? Remember many years ago when um, my mom was on her way to work early one morning, I was going to give her a lift. It was a very frosty morning. I remember we were running a little late, I think. And so as we were getting out of the house, I was scurrying around looking for my glasses. And she said, what are you looking for, Joel? And I said, I'm looking for my glasses, mum. She looked at me and she said, but you're wearing them. Well, yeah, sometimes we're just too close. We're just too close. Somebody else needs to step back, look at us, and just help us to see ourselves. And so many new ideas have come to help us grapple with a biblical appreciation of doing biblical justice. And we've had to get used to a new vocabulary of ideas, concepts, and words, institutional racism, unconscious bias, white privilege, white gaze, what black lives matter, intersectionality, critical race theory goes on and on. And these ideas outside of our comfortable worldview provides critical tools for our own self-evaluation as Christians. Now, we don't agree with everything. Say, if the devil himself came to me and said, Black Lives Matter, I would say, Amen. But I wouldn't follow him to hell, quite frankly. And so these ideas maybe tools which help us. It's rather like someone doing a PhD and you partner with someone from another discipline, a critical partner, someone from the world of science or a historian or a psychologist or a mathematician, because what you want to do is to compare your theological thinking with another discipline. It's actually the same thing. And I think when Jesus encounters Samaritan worldview, I am pretty sure that this would have helped the disciples to think again. And this is why religious leaders hated Jesus. He mixed in with Republicans and sinners, of course, to bring them the good news about Jesus, but also to hear the world as they saw it, to see the world as they experienced it. 
And so in ignoring everyone else's perspective, we become short-sighted. We get locked off from conversations which the world is having, which we simply cannot afford to miss. To be a disciple of Jesus is to take up my cross and to follow Jesus. But taking up my cross also means embracing the pain of those who have been wounded by history and wounded by my own behaviour. It is often in that pain that the possibility of change actually begins to take shape. I suspect if it doesn't hurt, nothing is happening. And so this is the route to transformed thinking, which leads to transformed behaviour. That takes us to our second reading. And once again, we're not diving into these texts in any detail, but to use them as important backcloth to our thinking about race. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. I love that. The Jewish believers finally coming to that place where the practice of diversity was truly understood against the context of experience. So because their worldview had been transformed, their behavior was changing. And you cannot underestimate the magnitude of what happened in that Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 without understanding the behavioral transition which had taken place over perhaps a couple of decades. Because their minds had changed, they were open to new ways of behaving with others from a different cultural and racial context. It began in Acts chapter 2. We're going to whisk through. You'll know these stories well. Day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and the disciples understand that God is speaking through other nations. I think we often see this as a, a marker for diversity, uh, for unity rather. It's a marker for unity. All these people from different national contexts speaking different languages is the unity of the church. I actually see it in quite the opposite way. This is a marker for diversity. God gives everyone in their own ethnic authenticity the opportunity to hear him, worshipped, and to respond in worship to him within their own cultural context. And we should not tell ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, that being Pentecostals or Charismatics put us in the best possible position to do racial justice well. Sometimes our paradigms of prejudice and power are actually amplified by our charismatic and Pentecostal experiences. Ask William Seymour, the black leader of Pentecostalism, who catalyzed the great revival of Azusa Street. He started his journey in a Pentecostal context, in a Pentecostal Bible school run by a white guy called Parham. And William J. Seymour, the black guy with the one eye, had to sit outside the corridor during Bible studies. Pentecostalism doesn't preclude us from doing the hard work of learning, rethinking, and shifting our behavior. On the day of Pentecost, diversity was sanctified. 
and the future church was outside the door, not inside the building. Act six, you know the story well, the story of the Greek widows who were being marginalized. Is this a story of unconscious bias? The disciples stop, elected a number of men to fix the problem, to serve tables. And I love this story because here's the secret. They chose Greek disciples, or at least disciples with Greek-sounding names, to sort out the problems they were experiencing. And these were really class men. These were men with great reputation in the community, people like Stephen with incredible preaching and prophetic ability. I have to ask myself, how comes on the day of Pentecost and then in Acts 6 following, the church quickly discovered the potential of high caliber leadership And we are still struggling in many churches to find high caliber leadership from people of other ethnicities in our churches when some of them have been with us for 20, 30, 10 years. How is that possible? Act 6 is a good model to go back and to learn about the future of race and racial justice from a biblical perspective. And then there's Acts 10. Oh, again, it's just too much for us. The story of Cornelius. Peter has to travel two days to meet up with a Roman centurion who was a lover of God and to discover that the Holy Spirit fell on non-Jews as he had in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and that God was breaking out of the, the racial barriers and actually blessing and empowering a Roman centurion who was the oppressor. And it took a two-day journey for Peter to travel from where he was located to go find a centurion two days' journey away. That's a lot of time to think and to reflect on what God was about to do. And so finally, because of the power of the church in Antioch, a gifted, multiracial, prophetic church, the council of elders finally reached that place where they say in Acts 15, do you know what? We're not going to expect Gentiles to behave like Jews. We're going to set them free to be Gentile Christians. We Lay no further burden on you, they said. We're not gonna we're not gonna expect you to behave like us because you're part of this fellowship. We're not going to expect you to pretend that you're English folks when you're not. We're not gonna ask you to worship in ways which denies your own cultural background and history. We're not going to stop you talking to God in ways which are natural to you and which expresses the best in your spirituality. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit, they said, not to burden you with anything beyond some very small requirement. This is still Judaism in action. This is still prohibition going on here. But actually, we're going to just say we want you to be free to know God in your own cultural context. 
it's only Willie Jennings in his wonderful book I mentioned before, um, Beyond Whiteness, calls belonging. Or we might call it communion. What does it mean for us to belong together in a fellowship or a movement or a nation? That's the challenge of the hour. And I think the Bible gives us some very helpful snapshots. Here is the answer to our question. What's next on race? Depends on how willing we are to rethink in order to behave like disciples of Jesus. God bless you.